Welcome to another episode of Religionless Church. I'm your mindless and insecure aspiring theologian and Religionless Church host, Mason Meniga. In this episode, I talk with Aishan Crowley. Aishan is the Assistant Professor of Religious Studies and African American and African Studies at University of Virginia. Aishan is also the author of Black Pentecostal Breath, The Aesthetics of Possibility. Also musically featured throughout this episode is Timothy O'Brien. Timothy is a solo pianist and composer. You can get connected with both Aishan and Timothy in their work in the links in the episode description. In the links in the description, you will also find my website, masonmeniga.com, where you can find more of my work, including some articles and papers I write, other religionless church episodes, and ways to connect with me via social media. If religionless church matters to you, there are two ways you can support. First, give the podcast a rating and a review. This not only offers thoughts and evaluations to others considering listening to the podcast, but it also informs me upon what to improve with the podcast. The second way to support is become a patron of my Patreon page. Patreon is a service where supporters financially support creators. With currently three different tiers varying from $1 to $10 a month, you receive respective rewards for supporting my work. Rewards include papers I write, upcoming Religionless Church episode previews, lectures I create, and much more. The links to connect to and support me and my work, including my Patreon page, are all in the episode description. I no longer wish to be your object cause of desire, as I, with my begging rambling, prevent you from your object of desire of this awaiting episode. Therefore, here it is, Religionless Church. So today we have Aishan Crowley, and Aishan is the Assistant Professor of Religious Studies and African American and African Studies at the University of Virginia, and you wrote a wonderful book a couple years ago. Um, yeah, a couple years ago now. I think it was released in 2016, right? Going back so quickly. Yeah, 2016 is when it came out. Yeah. So uh, a couple years ago, but I read over this summer and absolutely loved it uh, and asked you if uh, we could have a conversation about the book. But before we even get into talking about the book, uh, I always ask uh, this question to the people I'm interviewing. I always ask a person who they are to themselves. So without further ado, who is Aishan Crowley to Aishan Crowley? (laughs) Who am I to myself? That is a meta question if i haven't heard one i (laughs) am someone that grew up pentecostal in east stars new jersey and Mm. what i was trying to figure out as a young person is what i was trying to figure out in the book Uh, sean crawley is a very inquisitive but also deeply confused person um he understands something about liberation um he's he's felt liberation in the practices of the church of his youth and in the in the sounds of the church that he was a part of, he felt a deep sense of um, sort of belonging, love, care, joy. Mm. But he also felt a, a 
deep set of um, conflicts. Um, Ashan, me, <laughs> is a queer person. Mm-hmm. And the sort of doctrines of queerness are that it's sinful and that you mm-hmm. should repent, that you have to change, and that it is your fault if you do not pursue a life of celibacy, um, a life that is constantly sort of based on change. And so on the one hand, the world that I was a part of presented me with a lot of love, care, and sort of a practice of liberation, but it also was a deeply, deeply problematic world that was um, had a carceral, a carceral logic, a kind of logic of enclosure, a logic of um, change, a logic of violence that would have people who are other, people who are different, have to fundamentally feel that their life is an existential crisis. And so for me, who I am is someone that is um, deeply unsatisfied with that conflict and someone who has been attempting to investigate in various ways, various um, attempts to figure out that conflict and to work away against that conflict in the service of liberation. And so Mm. who I am is someone that's um, concerned about liberation for the world. I'm deeply concerned that uh, the world practice um, kindness and care with one another, um, that people in the world figure out how to live on earth in ways that do not um, eviscerate the earth, but that we figure out ways to care for one another and to tend to and to care for the earth as well. And so for me, what I am and who I am is a, a person of deep imagination, someone who imagines that it is possible to practice liberation with one another. It's possible to practice care. It's possible to practice joy with one another. And I know that it's possible because of the deeply conflictual worlds of which I was a part, where joy, love, and care was constantly practiced. Um, And so that's who I am, I think. (laughs) What inspired you to write Black Pentecostal Breath? Well, so, I mean, I was inspired to write it partially because um, my dissertation advisor, the book was my dissertation. At one point, I had planned a project about um, about the Underground Railroad, actually. I was going to write about the sound culture um, and the sound culture and movement that was made possible through sound of um, what is colloquially called the Underground Railroad or um, more officially something like the Fugitive um roots that people took in order to escape the condition of enslavement. I wanted to document sounds and songs that people used in order to sort of produce that practice of sort of liberatory politic. My dissertation advisor, though, said to me that um, it was a perfectly fine project, but it didn't seem like that was the thing that I wanted to do. Mm. It confused me because I had written a lot about it, and so I thought I was wanting to write about it. But he said to me, you keep sending me these videos that are about Pentecostalism. It seems like there's something that you want to say about Pentecostalism that perhaps has not been said yet. Mm. And so one reason why I even produced it as a dissertation project is because I had someone who knew my work and who knew me enough to know that there was something that was being left unsaid, something that was being left unspoken. Um, in the sort of really professional project that I set out, that there was something deeper that I should sort of reach for, grasp for. Um, another reason why I wrote it is because I've been trying to, like I said, figure out the conflict um, between the sort of liberatory practice of the flesh that Pentecostalism um, 
privileges, but then this liberatory practice of flesh that seems to be and is deeply antagonistic to mm. the doctrines of sin and sinfulness of queer people, of women often, mm-hmm. of people who are impoverished, that the doctrines and the theologies um, that are produced in this social world are against the very ways people are behaving with one another on an everyday, quotidian, mundane basis. And so another reason why I wanted to write the project beyond sort of the the um, the care that my um, advisor practiced with me was because there was this conflict that I was deeply interested in investigating in order to figure out how do we produce a way out? How do we produce a way of escape mm. from this kind of ongoing, pernicious, deeply violent um, conflict? It's not like an abstract conflict that has no material resonance in the world, but it has deeply, I was thinking earlier today, um, I grew up in a Pentecostal organization called the Church of God in Christ mm-hmm. and the largest Black Pentecostal organization in the world. And just last week, they had their annual conference. And during the annual conference, um, one of the persons whose name is Frances Kelly, she's an um, evangelist in the church, a preacher. Um, she was praying for a young man and she said um, specifically the words, um, I know that you hang around a lot of sissies and sissified men, but you need to get away from those sissified men. Um, I know that you hang around with a lot of, um, and and excuse the terminology, everyone, but she said explicitly, we call those people faggots. And she said, I'm not calling you a faggot, but I want you to know that you're around those kind of men and you need to get from around them. And so for me, this is the, pro- the problem that I've been investigating um, that I've been intellectually sort of interested in in academia for let's say the last 15 years. But even as a young person, I was deeply concerned about the ways the rhetoric of the preaching um, and the doctrines were in conflict with the ways people were behaving hmm. on a daily basis. And so that's really the sort of major reason why the project was written was to figure out what is this, um, why do we have to have this language? Why do we have to have this doctrine when the practice of being together with one another in the church service is actually a way of escape from this doctrine and this theology? Mm-hmm. What did you learn about yourself while writing Black Pentecostal Breath? Oh, I learned that I didn't know about Pentecostalism a lot. Um, <laughs> so the first thing that I, I knew Pentecostalism experientially, I, I knew mm-hmm. it as Sort of the thing that I did on a weekly basis, the churches that I went to, um, Sunday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, on a weekly basis. And so I knew it sort of intimately in terms of my practice. Um, I was training to be a a preacher and I was a choir director and I was a Hammond musician in the church or in various churches, the church that I grew up in New Jersey and the churches in Philadelphia. So I knew sort of Pentecostalism. Um, on a deeply experiential level, I shouted, which means I means I danced in the spirit, I spoke in tongues, and I found it um, to be very um, beautiful, cathartic, lovely. Um, but not only cathartic, I found it to be something that catharsis as a concept can sort of capture. It's not just about overcoming harm and shame, but it also felt something that was liberatory that was not related to harm and shame either. Mm-hmm. And so in some ways, 
what I had to do was learn histories. And so one of the things that I learned about myself is the fact that I did not know the history. What else I learned um, about myself through the practice of the writing is that I'm still deeply moved by the practices um, of noise making, the practices mm -hmm. of, of the practices of dance, the practicing of, of hooping while preaching, speaking in tongues, that I identify, I guess you could say, as an agnostic. I organize my life around the concept of agnosticism because I don't know and I actually don't care if a god um, or deity or set of deities, whatever, exists. Um, I'm interested in the practice of um, liberation. I'm interested in the practice of justice that does not have to have God or deities or the transcendent at the root of those practices. Mm -hmm. I'm interested in how we can be with one another, even if such a thing or such a set of things did not exist. And so for me, claiming agnosticism but engaging in this project also allowed me to realize how still deeply, I guess you could call it spiritual, I am. Mm -hmm. um, I, I still believe in the noise making and the capacity for noise making to produce joy, um, the capacity for being together with others and congregation can bring care. Um, so I'm deeply committed to the idea that spirituality can exist also and does exist without God figures or that deities are not necessary for the practice of spirituality. And so for me, one of the things I was trying to figure out and trying to learn about myself is what does it mean to actually engage in a spiritual practice um, that is not grounded in a God concept. the book with Eric Gardner's cry, I Can't Breathe, as he is being murdered by NYPD. In that section, you say this, I can't breathe charges us to do something, to perform, to produce, otherwise than what we have. How does Black Pentecostalism charge to do something, to perform, and to produce otherwise than what we have? Well, because Black Pentecostalism was um, created in the way that I theorize it, think about it, and also the historical legacy of it, it was created because of people renouncing Pentecostal practice as mm. um, sufficient as um, legitimate modes of theological and um, theological and doctrinal reflection. Mm -hmm. That the the shouting, the hooping, the speaking in tongues has always been done. It's not like these are things that Pentecostals invented at all. Pentecostals were engaging in practices that had been engaged before them, but they decided to constitute their religious, sacred way of life around these set of practices in ways that other people relinquished in order to aspire towards a more normative understanding of the right or correct theological and doctrinal practice and mode of reflection. And so for me, Pentecostalism is created because people let it go. Um, or the thing that we call Pentecostalism is the thing that we call Pentecostalism insofar as people are um, in, in the aspiration for normativity are deeply desiring to give up these practices in order to practice something called the normative. Mm. And so for me, what Pentecostalism 
does is it gives us or provides us with an experimental experiential practice of refusing to relinquish the things that we already have with us. And so Eric Gardner is an example of that too, where he is saying, I can't breathe. The reason why he cannot breathe is because he is being attacked by the state because he is engaging in practices with people mm-hmm. that the state wishes to desire or the state desires to control. Mm-hmm. Um, the, the, what they said of him is that he was selling loose cigarettes on the street, which meant that they weren't taxed, which meant that he was engaging, according to their logic, in an alternate mode of economic order. That what he was doing was providing for people in ways that the state could not capture, that the state could not um, repress. Mm. And because of that, the state then has to act violently on him um, because of the fact that they are trying to engage in control. Um, And so for me, the reason why Eric Garner is so important that we pay attention to is because his lament, I can't breathe, is literally produced because of a, of a relinquishment of people to mm-hmm. engage with one another in care and kindness mm-hmm. in the service of becoming normative through the state, right? Mm-hmm. That mm-hmm. they are desiring for and they are aspiring towards the normativity that they believe the state can provide. And so police are the agents of the state and the police that act violently against him in order to cause him to not interdict or interrupt or or to act against and be a fundamental antagonism to the practice of an alternate mode of social organization. Mm. Yeah. You talk about the aesthetic practice of shouting in Black Pentecostalism. You mentioned Charles Harrison Mason, an early Black Pentecostal minister, and he made shouting available to all without secularizing it. How does the aesthetic practice of shouting democratize worship? Well, because everyone can engage in it. Um, and everyone can engage in it differently. The uniqueness of the one who is shouting is constantly maintained, even when people are shouting together. That what the and I would I don't necessarily know if I would use the word democratizing as as much as I would use the concept of making it available to everyone. Mm-hmm. And I don't know democracy and democratizing has a kind of um resonance of uh kind of capital p politics mm-hmm. that i'm not sure i want to sort of engage in mm-hmm. um i do think though that what charles harrison mason is saying is that everyone has the ability to shout everyone has the ability to move everyone has the ability to dance and that we dance which is another way to say we are choreographed we move in our flesh in varied ways according to the abilities that we have. So it's not to make a normative claim that everyone um, can walk, for example, or everyone can run, for example, Mm. but that in our flesh, the very movement of our flesh just seems to me, because our atoms are constantly moving, um, the particles that make up who we are are constantly engaging in vibration, that Mm. for me, him saying that everyone can shout and that it doesn't have to be a so-called doctrinal or theological thing, but that it can itself be a practice of joy that everyone can engage in. What he is saying then, or what that means to me, is that we all move and Mm. that in our variedness, our movement actually then produces the occasion to think about if we all move, then how can we think about our similarities and how can we think of our differences in similarity? That we don't have to think of ourselves as absolutely fundamentally and um, purely different from one another or categorically mm-hmm. distinct from one another. Mm-hmm. That, you know, quantum entanglement, which is 
sort of what particle physics has figured out when two or more particles act in concert with one another faster than the speed of light, such that they are not inhibited by gravity, light, or anything, um, space-time separation, that that concept for me then means that we have to redefine who we think we are, who we think we are as a people. And that shouting as a choreographic and also sonic form of movement lets me think about what does it mean to make move, not to make movement available, but to say that we all already have movement available to mm. us. Mm. In your chapter on noise, you talk about the testimony service in which, uh, and, this, and I quote, this is, this is from that chapter, uh, in which you say, someone might sing a song or lead a prayer, but the service doesn't begin because such a concept would presume that the work of the spirit is in need of being convoked. How does the aesthetic practice of noise f- place full faith in the otherwise work of the spirit that is already and always happening? Well, I mean, thank you for that question. I think that, you know, noise is what we have. Noise is mm. the grounds of our existence. Noise or noise, which is to say vibration, is the fact of the inha- it's the fact of um particle um matter that the things that make us up, the things that make up tables, lights, and chairs, the thing that makes up the sun, the things that make up the ground, trees. Um, flowers, leaves, that these are all made of things that are constantly moving, that they are never not moving, that that stillness doesn't exist. Um, Quiet or silence absolutely does not exist, or pure Mm -hmm. silence, absolute silence does not exist. Everything is moving at its own velocity, at its own pace. Um, Everything is moving with its own uh, modality and concept of haste. Such that if everything is moving, everything is making noise. And if everything is making noise, then to say that, you know, the service begins because we can call the spirit to do its work is to not attend to, it seems to me, the ongoing practice of noise making, which is another way to say the ongoing practice of vibration that is the grounds for existence. That what we have to do, um, one of my favorite preachers, Iona Locke, might say, is to move in the already ongoing movement of spirit, to recognize the movement is already happening all around us and to try to figure out a way together with others to move in the ongoing verve of, or in the ongoing movement of movement, like to figure out how am I going to move in that thing that is constantly already happening around. Love of the Hammond B3 organ. I couldn't get enough of it throughout the whole book. Uh, I didn't grow up in Pentecostalism, and um, and so I, I was completely unfamiliar. You're talking about the B3, so I was assuming, is this like some sort of Star Wars thing that's being talked about? What's going on? And then I looked it up, and I'm like, oh, it's a, it's a, it's a type of organ. Um, yeah. But how does the, the B3 play into Black Pentecostalism? Well, I think that it has become um, the sound 
that is imagined for the Black church in general. I think that when people think of the Black church as a sonic experience or a sounded out experience, one of the things they think about is the sound that is being made of by the organ. Hmm. That there is a very specific sound that the Hammond organ makes that is unlike or dissimilar to pipe organ. Um, and people think about the sounds of the Hammond organ, it seems to me, as a way to think about the cultural practice of Black church. Um, one of the first churches where this instrument was played is this church, First Church of Deliverance, which is in Chicago, Illinois. And they had a radio broadcast, so people would hear the um, the instrument and then they would go to the church to see it because they were so intrigued by this mm. new kind of instrument that had this very unique sound. Um, Lawrence Hammond, who invented the patent for, or patented the organ, the Hammond organ, he said that it sounds human-like and that mm. that it it sounds like it breathes. And so it sounds different from other kinds of electronic instruments. And so for me, the way that I think about the Hammond organ is I've been to very large churches. I've been to very small churches, storefront churches. I've been to churches um, of, of various kinds of congregational sizes. And often these Pentecostal churches will have Hammond organs that they are very interested in the church sounding like church, the church service sounding like a church service. And often what they mean is they want someone who can play this instrument with a certain kind of effectiveness so that the church service can be productive. Um, mm. And so for me, this instrument is very, very germane to sort of the practice of Pentecostalism after it's invented because it is so ubiquitous in sort of the Black church in general, but especially in um, Pentecostal churches. Pentecostal musicians are often the ones sought after because of their um, virtuosity, because of their skill, because they understand the movement of spirit, and because they understand how to flow with the congregation. And so this particular instrument, it seems to me, is important because it is like it is understood as a cultural object. It's not just understood as an instrument hmm. that is understood to say something about the kind of church that you are in, the kind of sounds that you will hear, the kinds of people that will be engaging it, the kinds of praise or the kinds of noise that people will be making because of it, that there's so much that is sort of linked into this instrument. Hmm. Throughout the book, you included excerpts of very personal emails how does Black Pentecostalism critique the academic world that would more than likely be so sternly uh, decrying uh, such personal revelations in, in a work like Black Pentecostal Breath? Well, one thing that I, you know, did not make clear, I guess you could say intentionally, is that they are semi-autobiographical mm. emails, that they are not necessarily um, true stories of things that have happened to a Sean Crawley. Okay are true tales of things that happened to a person named A. A and Ashan are not the same person. Um, one of the reasons why I wanted to include the semi-fictional semi -fictional material in the actual um, book is because when I wanted to write, for example, about sort of intimacy, um, intimacy that the noise practices of church goers um, makes possible, um, I had already written it in this project um, that's called The Lonely Letters, which will be published next year, from which the four letters that are in Black Pentecostal Breath 
are excerpted from, um, that they said the thing that I wanted to say in a way that was, um, I think, more direct than had I attempted to theorize what I meant by intimacy being made possible through certain kinds of practices of noise making. And so for me, one of the things that Pentecostalism does is it's deeply about the movement of the flesh and a refusal to be embarrassed by the practice of being together with other people in the world. Academia is so much based on abstraction as it's based, um, abstraction of concepts, abstraction of thought, um, as if we can have something called critical distance away from the objects that we are trying to engage, think about, be in, and to discuss. Black Pentecostalism, it, it's not about abstraction. It's about a deep commitment to being with, a deep commitment to fleshliness, which is another way to say a refusal of critical distance and the service mm. of being close. And so for me, the letters are about the practice of that dissidence mm-hmm. to say that there is a kind of closeness and intimacy that the letters are trying to produce in a supposedly academic text in order to interrupt the idea of the academic text as something that it cannot handle, that cannot hold, that does not have the capacity to stand with something like a deep kind of intimacy. Today, we have Timothy O'Brien, and Timothy is the artist you've been listening to throughout this episode. And uh, Timothy, you're a unique artist that I've had on this, uh, on, on this podcast. Rarely do I have any instrumental music, much less piano-driven instrumental music. Uh, so tell me about your history with piano, because that's not an instrument you just learn overnight and then start recording. Uh, so tell yeah. me, like, what what got you into piano and versus like electric guitar or bass or drums or singing or whatever else you could do? Why the piano? Well, I, you know, I started out piano lessons when I was in primary school. I think I was around the age of five. And uh, instantly I just I wanted to write. I didn't want to play the music on the page. I didn't want to play the music that was assigned to me. I just mm. wanted to compose. And so um, throughout my formative years studying music composition, I just always came back to the piano. It just seems like such a simple place to start ideas with. Hmm. Wow. What, uh, what, what other instruments in that time did you pick up and kind of learn a little bit? <clears throat> did, did you end up learning guitar or any, any, of, uh, any other instruments? Yeah, I've learned some guitar, some bass. Um, woodwinds i've learned string theory but i'm not the best at playing stringed instruments okay um i picked up organ uh theremin a theremin okay yeah yeah some spooky stuff nice i I, you know i am always for a theremin um what about like 
piano-like instruments, like an organ. Or uh, I'm trying to think, what was that old classical? Like, you'll hear it in a lot of, like, uh, George Washington-type movies where it's... I'm trying to think what... You, you know what I'm talking about? What instrument's that? Um, like the harpsichord? Yes, that's exactly yes. what it is. It's like almost like a mini piano. Yeah, yeah. And so anyway, have you, have you picked up on any of those type of uh, piano-like instruments? Yeah, I've done some um, recording for organ. Um, oh, okay. And I actually own two toy pianos and several melodicas. So anything with keys. I also have an accordion that I kind oh, yes, of I play with is... sometimes. So anything that can kind of like get a good harmonic balance that I can mm. play with. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Have you ever toyed with recording with vocals and, and uh, all of that shenanigans? <laughs> um, you know, I was in a band in high school and I just, I work well independently. <laughs> um, I see my vision very clearly and I, I just enjoy the challenge that classical music and composition mm. sometimes offers. It's like yeah. a puzzle. So with some of your recent music, what are some classical composers who have, especially with your recent music, have really deeply informed that? Yeah, I've been listening to a lot of like romantic, even more romantic, from, even from Baroque through classical, through romanticism. I've been listening mm. to some um, Rossini overtures, some opera. <laughs> okay. Um, and I've been listening to even some uh, Chopin piano pieces. Huh. Just really trying to get a good variety of what I... I always say that writing, whether it's like composition, music composition, poetry, whatever, if writing is breathing out, then listening and reading is breathing in. So you just mm. have to listen to as much variety and really say, this is what I like, this is what I want to make. Mm-hmm. Are there any like pop artists or kind of current and modern day artists that have informed your recent music at all? Um, yeah, I really, I really enjoy what Bjork does to kind of oh, okay. stretch the aus- audience's listening capabilities. Mm-hmm. Um, but I mean, I'll also sit and listen to Carly Rae Jepsen on repeat <laughs> for three days. So I kind of do listen to everything. Wow. What, how, do, how do you see, so you, you mentioned Bjork and how her music has influenced uh, your composition. How, how does like an artist that's so different than classical music, like someone like Carly Rae Jepsen, how does someone like that influence classical music? I, I, I feel like they're so juxtaposing that there yeah. wouldn't be much influence, but I'm sure someone like yourself who loves both is able to find some overlap in some ways where they both can kind of influence one another. Pop is really good at form. Pop has a certain form that they stick to that Mm. gets your attention, keeps your attention, and gives you a perfect uh, setup for a bridge and a chorus. Right. So I'm always always influenced by the structure and the ability to kind of like convey emotions through harmonies and melodies Mm -hmm. because the more catchy a pop song is, um, it's what's important. Yeah. How how much capability does a classical composition have for that catchy poppy feel? Is there, is there much room for that? I think, I think so. I've uh, heard a couple groups that have remixed classical pieces into electronic pieces uh, like amplified violin. And um, I think it works well. Interesting. 
I guess like my only way of thinking about that, again, you're far more educated and, and well trained in this, uh, but I think about a lot of the Looney Tunes use of classical music and yeah. how the fact that they were able to find like these little bits of a whole long composition, but they find that little bit that like almost becomes ingrained in your mind when you watch these Looney Tunes that almost has like that catchy pop uh, music vibe that any other pop song would, uh, you know, yeah. wh- whether it's something from Beethoven or Mozart or whoever, th- but they, th- for those, uh, those people that compile and create those Looney Tune um, cartoons, they're able to find that right little kind of catchy poppy part of a really long and old uh, composition. I, I don't know. I, have you noticed kind of the same type of thing in, in, in that work? Yeah, I've done a little bit of film scoring. And oh. um, it's all about trying to find the emotions at the right time to be able to just push the audience along with what they should be feeling. Mm. What, speaking of film scoring, what film score, like a classical composition film score, has uh, moved you the most? Um, probably the Philip Glass score for The Hours. Oh, I'm not familiar um, with that movie. It's a movie based on a um, Virginia Woolf novel, based okay. on a novel based on Virginia Woolf. But it has Meryl Streep, Nicole Kidman, Julianne Moore. Okay. And it's a, very, it's a very dark, moody movie, but the, uh, the minimalism in the music and the re- repetition work together really well to kind oh. of guide the emotions, I think, without confusing the listener. Wow. So you also talked about a little bit earlier about kind of this, like you breathe in uh, through listening and kind of acquiring all these like different flavors of music. uh, And then you breathe out, you know, kind of what what comes of that. Um, I'm also curious. I mean, we've been talking about classical compositions and pop music that has influenced your own music. But is there anything outside of music that really deeply influences your music? Maybe there's movies or books, or authors, or maybe there's current life events that have been really influential in the making of your music. Uh, is there any of that that has been really influential? Yeah, definitely. Um, the piano music that I just recently released last year is all piano music I wrote when I was at Bible College. Oh, um, okay. Before I had to quit because I met a boy and oh, yeah. decided they to do get that. They, you know, there's a they few of them that, that do that. Yeah. So that music um, is all piano music that I was practicing on my own and writing to really like get away and cope mm. with what was going on in my personal life. That's great. Was, it a, was that a healing process for you to be able to kind of express your emotions in, in this really musical way, you know, something that's given you so much passion in your life? Definitely. And not only was it healing to write, but now it's healing to go back and listen to because I ah. hear the pain and the sadness and mm. the worry in it. And now I see like, oh, man, I came through that. That's awesome. The resiliency of human beings. I love it. I love it. Yes. What, uh, what are some upcoming projects do you have? Are you, do you have any EPs, albums coming out, any other singles, projects, anything in the works? Uh, I'm currently working on a sound bath. It's going to be um, a whole composition of ambient music. And each mm-hmm. track is supposed to take us away and give us a new memory of somewhere that we wish we could go, whether it be 
our grandmother's backyard listening to wind chimes or a few uh, city blocks down the street and just the walk there. Mm. And so I'm really like crafting this sound bath and um, I'm releasing that in um, April. Wonderful. Well, thank you so much for chatting about your music. Uh, I, re- I was listening to it this morning and uh, just kind of, it's, you know, a really like kind of piano centric music is something I, I'm, I don't normally listen to. And yeah. so it was really, uh, it, it kind of like put me in a new frame of mind uh, because it was something that was kind of new and fresh for me. And so I really have appreciated your music and I, and I love well, the gusto you. and passion and all the inspiration uh, behind all that music. Thank you. Are you familiar with Bonhoeffer's religionless Christianity by any chance? A little bit, but you would have to like remind me of what you want to say. <laughs> yeah. So uh, obviously, Bonhoeffer uh, had a was a part of a conspiracy that uh, to kill Hitler and really decried and critiqued Nazism and especially the the co opting of the church with with Nazism and, and fascism. Um, and in his time in prison, he wrote a number of letters back and forth one of his, with one of his, um, with one of his uh, companions of sorts. He uh, eventually talked about this idea of religionless Christianity. And because it was, I mean, because he was killed within a year of him starting to write about this, he, he didn't really get to flesh out too much yeah. of what he meant by it. But uh, a lot of it had to potentially talked about this world that, maybe no longer needed to think about God in the way that religions had thought about God prior. Um, And that potentially people would be of practicing um, of the, of the practices within different religions, but maybe not necessarily adhering to them in the the same exact way. Uh, You mentioned at the top of the episode about how uh, you sort of live in this world where, um, you certainly value maybe the uh, what you I kind of mentioned the spiritual elements of Black Pentecostalism, mm-hmm. um, but maybe not necessarily adhering uh, to certain particular doctrines or even to the idea of God and God's self. Uh, so it seems like potentially that a lot of not only just your the book but your own life as well maybe resonates or relates or maybe even potentially connects to Bonhoeffer's religionless Christianity, uh, but maybe you don't find any. Uh, any uh relation there at all but um yeah do you have any thoughts about how you sort of think of black pentecostalism or just your work in general as sort of maybe 
being religionless, but at the same time valuing the the spiritual practices uh, of Black Pentecostalism. Yeah. Um... So I would say, I don't know if it's religionless Christianity. Because mm-hmm. uh, I, I, you know, people say I'm spiritual, but not religious. Um, mm-hmm. Because what they say, they don't like organized religion. And I understand the impulse that they're after. Mm-hmm. But I actually am perfectly fine with organization. I think mm-hmm. that what organized religion does sometimes well oftentimes terribly but sometimes well (laughs) is it organizes people it brings people together it Mm -hmm. gives people a place to dwell it gives people a sense of community through like walls for example i'm not saying that walls are the only place where it happens but then Mm -hmm. the organized part is the thing that i'm not sort of concerned about it's the doctrinal part that Mm. deeply for me is the problem and so i would be more in favor of a kind of Christianless Christianity that mm. that actually a Christianity um, that is evacuated of the doctrines that are about um, Jesus as the Anointed One who's come to take away the sins of the world. One because I don't believe in sin. Um, two because I don't think any one person could carry that. Now a whole lot mm. of people get mad at me because they say, "Well, he's the God Man." I just don't believe that, and so. But what I do believe in are the practices that emerge from Pentecostal churches, the noise making, the shouting, the joy, the exuberance, the the way people sing, the way the organist plays. And for me, what that means is there is something that emerges in the practice of being together with other people that is not reducible to the doctrines and theologies that the people are pronouncing even when they're together, that there's something that the music, the sound, the, the the dance, the choreography is making available to us to know as possible, but that doesn't have to be relegated to doctrine, um, certain kinds of doctrine, certain kinds of theologies. And so in The Lonely Letters, one thing I've been engaging in is an art practice. Um, I actually produce paintings um, that are trying to think with the practices of Pentecostalism. So one thing I do is put paint on my hands and listen to praise breaks that I find on YouTube. Mm. And I clap my hands to the rhythm of the praise break. Then I'll put the paint on the tambourine and I'll play the tambourine to the rhythm and let the paint splatter on surfaces just to see what it looks like. Because one of the things I'm interested in is what does praise actually look like if we give it a color or Mm. a certain kind Mm -hmm. of um, visual um, register that is also a visual resonance that does not take away from the um, from the sonic, but that augments it. Another thing that I do is I um, take pigment powder and I'll listen to those same praise breaks, and I will dance on canvas um, or shout on canvases with the pigment powder in order to press the pigment powder into the paper in order to look like what does the shouting tradition look like if we paint with it. And so one of the things that I'm trying to do in my own work is to think about um, Black Pentecostalism multimodally, to say that the practices carried there, have been cultivated there, have been produced with joy there, but they're not owned by Black Pentecostals. And so mm. one of the things I think is a problem of Western thought is the way that it sequestered the, the concept of the spiritual. 
and the practices that come along with the spiritual. And so in the lonely letters, one question I ask is, what would happen if we released or relinquish the the way of spirituality has been relegated to the zone of the religious? What if we release spirituality to allow it to be something that is more capacious than the thing called the religious can hold? I think we all have a sense of that. And so some of the practices I'm trying to engage um, audiovisually are in order to approach this question, um, in order to interrogate the sort of ways these practices are thought to belong to as a form of private property Pentecostalism, mm-hmm. say that they don't actually belong there while also not being dismissive of Pentecostals who have cultivated those practices. Mm. Last question. How can listeners get connected with you and your work? They can find me on Twitter, um, a Sean Crawley at, or, or at a Sean Crawley, I guess you could say. Mm-hmm. Um, and they could Google me. I have a bunch of essays. I write a lot of personal essays um, that try to do the work that's in Black Pentecostal Breath Mm -hmm. in a different kind of register. And so I'm really interested. I don't have any anxiety about writing academically, but I do want to make sure that the work finds various kinds of audiences. And so Mm -hmm. I try to write various various forum um, and various um, voices and various registers. And so they can find me by Googling. There are a bunch of essays that are available too. Um, or they can email me, um, Ashan at AshanCrawley.com. Well, wonderful. Well, thank you so much. Um, again, I, I read uh, Black Pentecostal Breath this summer and absolutely loved it. Um, and I, I hope everyone picks it up and uh, reads it for themselves to see how amazing it is. Thank you so much. I really appreciate the kindness. I really do. that episode left you hanging and you're wanting more from both Aishan and Timothy, you can find links to connect to them and their work in the episode description. Again, you can also connect to me through my website, masonmenega.com. There you can find more of my work, including some articles and papers I write, other religionless church episodes, and ways to connect with me via social media. Also, as I mentioned at the top of the episode, If Religionless Church matters to you, support by giving a rating and review and by becoming a patron of my Patreon page. Thank you for listening to Religionless Church. I send you out with this. May the divine bless you with doubt and keep you disrupted. May the divine make the divine's face of infinitude shine upon you and show you graciousness to your own finitude. May the divine lift up the divine's countenance of justice upon you and give you whole unsatisfaction, now and forever. So be it.